Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. The goal is to make our retail business better, more productive, more efficient, and more profitable for both sides. That's where I think about partnership. And so, yes, you're right. I think the different retailers and different brands, there are different relationships between the merchants, the retailers, and the brands for sure. Same thing on the media side. So it's not that everything is amazing and partner in every single situation, but that's where we've got to get to, I think, in the industry where the brands and the retailers are really on the same side. We're trying to find consumers, get them the right product at the right price and make profitable businesses on both sides. And I think retail media gives us a way to do that that didn't exist before. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. always get from mentors as well as investors and folks that have been doing this far longer than I, like yourself, is in tough economic times, the most important thing for your business is to demonstrate ROI. All I heard from everything you just said is that I'm older than you. So <laughs> you might need to repeat the question, but putting that aside, yes, thanks to my years of experience, I would say that having worked through multiple recessions at this point, when you get to be my age, it does create this forcing function to be able to say, hey, show me the money. And whether that's mentors, managers, or my bank account, in the end, it's all about show me how the profits come. And I think there's been all of these sky high, ridiculous valuations that I think you and I were talking about in the beginning of the pandemic, where we're just like, okay, this, this is ridiculous. And now there's more of a conversation around, okay, show me the money, which couldn't make me happier. So in software businesses like Profitero or Micmac, when it comes to demonstrating to the end customer the ROI of what you're doing, typically that's in the format of either time saved, like, hey, you now need fewer humans because this software is automating work for you, or the software actually can prove that it's driving revenue growth for the said user. What I find so challenging about driving revenue growth is that attribution is just broken for the entire ecosystem. I mean, it's been broken for a long time. I think there's just this almost assumption that because there's more data, therefore the attribution 
will be easier to track. And the truth is, I remember doing this in search. Oh my God, I'm like sounding like such an old person. I don't care, you know, whatever, I'll own it. But when we were doing this in search, there was this whole idea of last click attribution. And in the beginning, when we were in search engine marketing, people were like, oh my God, Google is going to mint me a ton of money. But it didn't take into account all the clicks that got you to that last click of conversion. And so here we are 20 years later with the same damn problem. The data exists, the connectivity doesn't. And I think it puts a place like e-com in a really, really precarious position because is that last click on a click and collect, where do you give that attribution to if you wouldn't have had that without your brand's halo effect or anything like that? And the reality is, is that we actually could solve the attribution challenge, but the companies that have permission to solve it don't play nice with each other. Tell me more. So if you think about the end-to-end customer journey, let's say it starts with awareness, whether that's happening in a digital platform like Meta, television, or actually within amazon.com, right? First, the customer becomes aware that the product exists. Then at some point in their journey, they're starting to consider that product, whether it's a need state against a competitor, a price, a promo, and then ultimately they decide to purchase. That purchase can be fulfilled online. It could be what you just described, buy online, pick up in store. It could just be good old fashioned. You go to the corner store. In order for anyone to get credit along that customer journey, all of those entities would have to be connected. And the thing that actually connects all of those entities is the mobile phone, right? Wherever the customer is, at least in the Western part of the world, their phone is a part of their ecosystem. That phone has a unique ID the internet that they use in their home or their work also has an ID address. All of that activity can live within social. It can live in the open web. It can live in retail.com. It could live in your physical corner store. But what's required is for the pipes to be connected. And those companies don't want to connect the pipes because they're competing for the same amount of market share. Correct. So we basically have walled gardens 2.0, which adds a greater degree of complexity. And those who are incented to fix it are not empowered to be able to do so. So do we throw in the towel, Rach? What do we do? Do we go cry in our pillow? Let's bring in another expert, another talking head to give us their take. But this one is a great one. He's someone in the industry that everyone admires. Michael Geller from Newell Brands. Let's bring him on to the show. Michael Geller, the president of e-commerce and digital at Newell Brands. I mean, Newell Brands is maybe not a company everybody here has heard of, but you certainly know all the brands that are sitting within that family. You know what? I think we're just going to Easter egg them through today's episode. But Mike, thank you so much for joining us. You are the OG of Ecom. And so we are so thrilled to have you today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So speaking of OG, you've got almost seven years of Amazon, a couple of Quidzy for those of you tracking along, more than five years of PepsiCo building one of the most advanced e-commerce operations brand side, ones that people say, I'd like to do what they did. And anybody who creates a give me one of those makes things just all the more enviable. And now approaching two years at Newell Brands, you've seen a thing or two, what's changed, what stayed the same? I'll answer with what stayed the same first. I think the stayed the same is consumer or customer, depending on what you call it, obsession, consumer obsession. Those who really think about consumers have a big advantage in the space. And it doesn't matter whether you're a brand 
or retailer, but the idea of putting the consumer first is and has been a constant. In terms of change, I think the biggest change that I see over the last bunch of years is this emergence of retail media as a really productive media platform. And it's still pretty new. And when you combine kind of the emergence of retail media and productivity there with the massive increase in e-commerce adoption, both kind of pre and really during COVID, what happened, it's really changed the options that marketers have to, to market. As important as that is, I think it's even had a bigger impact in terms of the retailer manufacturer dynamic and relationship, which I think is really interesting. We're shifting from a world where this like brand is here and retailer is the customer and that's the relationship to one where it's a little bit more, it's not, I wouldn't say it's even, but a little bit more of a partnership than it's ever been before. And I think that's in a large part, I think, due to the retail media emergence. You know, we've had a bunch of folks onto the show who do talk about retail media, its growing share of the pie, but some of them don't use the word partnership. We've had folks on the show who even use language like extortion. So just curious, you know, given that you've been on both sides of the table, how you suggest folks can approach it like a partnership? Again, there are different pieces of it. So if you're thinking broadly from just from a brand perspective, you really should spend dollars in retail media when it's productive, when the bottom line pays for itself. And you want to think about it, if you're going to shift into or out of retail media from other media channels or platforms, ideally, you, you want to make sure that the ROI is as good, almost as good, better, et cetera. But what's interesting, I think, about retail media, at least from my perspective, is if a retail platform is, call it the same or even slightly better than a retail media platform, I think there's a big advantage for brands to actually invest in the retail media because there's a second relationship you have with that partner, which is the retail side of it. And the reason I say partnership is because if you start making it more of a partnership and saying, look, our, we have a mutual goal here, like we're happy to invest in your retail media platform, but the goal is to make our retail business better, more productive, more efficient, and more profitable for both sides. That's where I think about partnership. And so, yes, you're right. I think the different retailers and different brands, there are different relationships between a between the merchants, the, re the retailers, and the brands for sure. Same thing on the media side. So it's not that everything is amazing and partner in, in every single situation, but that's where we've got to get to, I think, in the industry where the brands and the retailers are really on the same side. We're trying to find consumers, get them the right product at the right price, and make profitable businesses on both sides. And I think retail media gives us a way to do that that didn't exist before. Yeah, totally buying into all of that. It does require a heck of a lot of education. When you say you've got the extra bonus of retail media, the fact that you're aligned with the actual points of conversion, it does require a little bit of a reset of understanding of what each of these channels, partnerships, whatever you want to call them, can and can't do. Have you gone about that? I agree with you. There's a lot of education. I also think that we don't know everything. And I also think that the platforms and the thinking are not mature yet. So we're experimenting, right? We're trying different things. We're trying different ways of, of structuring the business relationship, trying different ways of testing the different platforms and see what works, trying to see, to improve our analytics, to figure out what's really productive and what's not. And whether, and again, I'm, I'm not advocating throwing all your money into retail media. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's just you have to include it into the media mix and in whatever the appropriate way is for your particular brand. It's going to take a little while, I think, to be figured out. And I think, you know, going back to your earlier comment, there are retailers who early on, they to use extortionary tactics, I think is a strong word, but they use tactics that said, basically, we want you to pay for this. And as part of your retail, essentially, agreement, that works 
as I said to one one retailer a few years ago, I was like, if you say you want us to spend X and that's what you require, we're going to spend exactly X and not a dollar more. If you make a platform that's really productive for us, we'll spend a lot more than X. So let's focus on doing that. And so figuring out how to make these platforms, that's true for any media channel. But in the retail thing, I think where the relationship is much deeper because of the retail side, I think the incentives should be aligned to, we got, you got to educate people to get to the place where we realize our incentives are actually pretty aligned. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. So you identified that on both sides of the table, there's this spirit of achieving profitable growth. That's the shared common goal. What goes into that is obviously a, a lot of data and insights to leverage to drive profitable growth. Some folks feel that there's so much data out there that they're almost paralyzed by it. What's your perspective on how to use data and analytics to shape the consumer experience and drive profitable growth? Great question. There's so much to talk about here relative to data. And let me go back to where Sarah was talking about having Easter eggs here for a second. For those of you who don't know, Newell Brands, We own dozens of phenomenal leading household brands. I'll name a few, but you can look at our websites, whatever, to see more. Sharpie, Rubbermaid, Calphalon, Coleman, Yankee Candle, Parker Pen, Graco Car Seats. I mean, so many different amazing brands here. And I'll talk a little bit about how at least we're using data to incorporate the brands a bit. When you have a lot of brands like this, right, the natural inclination if you're running a brand is to operate independently and separately. And that's historically how a lot of brands have have worked. And data has been really kind of at the brand level in a lot of ways. What we've been able to do, and this is an example, but one example is we've been able to kind of have a better understanding of how brands work together from a consumer perspective. So again, I go back to my original comment about consumer being at the front or in the center. So as an example, a consumer buys a Graco car seat from us. What do we know about her? What do we know about the shopper? Well, actually, a Graco car seat is a pretty good signal of kid in the family. We probably know the basic age. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we know there. And then we can use data to kind of figure out a little bit more about them, what they're buying, who they are, et cetera. And then what we're able to do is say, okay, what's the basket of products that might solve a need for that mom in that case? And you can do that whether it's having a baby or whether it's buying a house or whether it's you know going to college or whatever. There are lots of times where a basket of products can actually solve a real need. And so using data in our, to both identify what the opportunity is, is big. But then the second part of it is then using that data or different data to go and target consumers with the right the right offers, bundles, packages, promotions, whatever it is, availability to try to entice them to consider products. And so we kind of think these are the kinds of examples of where 
consumer lens, we can provide what we think is a great consumer experience, which drives upside for us. And obviously, in the, to our earlier conversation, potentially to the retailers we work with. I think that ties so well to your point on consumer obsession and not letting the data get in the way of the focus on the consumer, but actually using it to enhance it ultimately, which I think ultimately is what you want to train people to think about. You know, one of the reasons why both Rachel and I seem to be in the e-com space in particular, not just marketing, even though both of us grew up in the marketing space, is just this whole idea of just getting down to the brass tacks of it all, the stake over the sizzle. We love the thrill of the conversion. Sometimes marketing gets carried away with too much sizzle, not enough steak. You've worked for some of the sizzliest companies. You've worked for the meatiest companies. Is it possible to have both the steak and the sizzle? How do you prioritize? The answer, yes. I think you can have both the steak and the sizzle, but it takes, I think, a bit of reframing a little bit in terms of the way you think. Let me step back. What's the goal of being a marketer? I think the goal of being a marketer is to ultimately get consumers to buy your product, which means you're Success metric is really sales or sales and profit, depending on the company, right? That's what marketers ultimately have to tackle. And what's amazing now is that we've got so much data to be able to allow us to drive to sales. By the way, sales doesn't necessarily mean like a marketing campaign has to lead to a sale tomorrow or today. It could mean that you have a marketing campaign that gets someone interested in the product. We have a lot of products that are higher consideration items, like some of our home appliance brands. It might take three, four, five, even 10 times before a consumer actually buys the product. So the marketing campaign, you have to know it's the first, second, third, fourth, whatever time eventually to get the sale. But ultimately, it's the sales output that's really the big deal. Historically, I think what's happened is we've used a lot of proxy metrics like awareness and stuff that you would consider kind of sizzly to some degree as metrics to kind of figure out whether marketing campaigns are productive. But that's that's changed. Like These proxy metrics aren't as needed anymore because we can now increasingly get a sales metric to do that. The reframing is to say, However you are as a marketer, I think putting sales and profit as the goal is the big thing. Now, how you do that goes to the sizzle, right? There are clearly opportunities, especially when like having a Super Bowl campaign or having a large, broad you know, TV campaign of any, of any sort, as an example, can be considered sizzly. But if your goal is sales, you're going to make a different decision than if your goal is winning an award, as an example. So I think that if you just reframe the goal, then you can do the sizzle and say, well, Did that quote unquote sizzly campaign actually get people to either immediately or over time buy the product as opposed to some other goal? If you have the right goal, I think the sizzle actually works well and you can do really creative, amazing things with the marketing and still have the stake as well. Mike, you were talking about how many touch points often it could take to actually lead to a sale. One of the things that we see in the industry that folks still struggle with is attribution, that there's this default to last click because as a consumer moves from, let's say, mobile social web to the Walmart app to then physically in store, attribution is broken down every step of the way. Given your seat, you're working across such diverse categories at different price points with different consumer journeys. How are you making sure the organization isn't looking at everything through last click? That's a a great question. And I would say, I don't think that's something that's solved, really. I don't think we have an attribution model that is perfect. But I do think that you can triangulate a lot by using a variety of metrics and a variety of looking, right? That's where MMMs come into play. You can try looking at different attribution models. 
And then you can actually do, you know, even some consumer research to figure out what people are doing. Let me flip the conversation around, maybe answer the question a little bit differently, but real life scenario that happened actually at Newell shortly after I joined, which I think typifies the, the problem. One of our senior salespeople came to the leader of one of our business units and said, I have a real problem. A very large retailer of ours, we sell in, in this particular category, less than 5% of our products online, but all my merchant wants to talk about is e-commerce, 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 e-commerce. And it's, it's so small and candidly, 95% plus of my business is in store. This doesn't make sense to me. How do I respond to that? And the, the leader came to me and asked the question. And I said to her, well, okay, let's, let's back up. What do you think the buyer means when they ask you about e-commerce? I said, what percentage of sales in your category or in your brands have a digital touch point? Right, whether it's a, a digital ad or someone's researching a product or looking for competitive price or seeing a social post or whatever, whether or not they buy in the store. And she said, Oh, that's great. We know the number of that. It's it's 75%. Right? 75% of people have a digital touch point. I was like, that's what the retailer is thinking about. They're not asking about e-commerce in terms of making that 5% of your sales 6% or 7%. What they're talking about is really more of a digital thing, which is saying 75% of your consumers are doing some kind of digital interaction in order to go and get them into the product. And they want you to focus on making those experiences as excellent as possible. So can we attribute, can we fully attribute each of those touch points to the sale? Not always yet, like in some cases more than others, but not always yet. But but the thought process is really important. And back to the conversation about education, educating folks to say, this is not like where if someone buys online or buys in store or gets it shipped home or picks up in store or whatever is a little bit different from getting them to go and decide that your product is the one that they want and that they're going to actually press, you know, at the cart and purchase, whether it's in store or out, or out. And so it's a long way to say, I don't think we know exactly how to do attribution to the penny, but if you frame the, the way you think a little bit differently into the goals to get them in there and to make each of those touch points both as effective as possible, you're gonna you're gonna win. Let's add a level of complexity with these Easter eggs. All this stuff is hard. We haven't figured it out. That's okay. I think all three of us tend to thrive in the murky. But you're you're selling things like Graco seats, Sharpie pens, Calvon pans, heavy candles that barely scratches the surface. How do you do all that other stuff and support extremely different? needs, path to purchase, considered versus impulse. Like there's so much to think about. How do you support from your perch? Part of that is just prioritization and focus, right? And, and the focus we're trying to put increasingly around here is we're prioritizing brands and products based on the combination of their potential profit strategic values. So again, back to meat versus sizzle. So you know, products that we think have a really high upside and have a profit pool under them are the ones that we're going to spend more time and money and effort on. And the other ones, less so. doesn't mean we're going to ignore them, but less so, or we're going to work on ways to figure out how to get them into that kind of profitable strategic bucket. The other lens, which is a little bit related, but a little bit orthogonal is also going back to the consumer side is if there's a consumer solution we're trying to solve and we can bundle or cross-sell brands to solve the consumer need, right? That also gives it a strategic advantage. So that's how I would say revenue, profit helps us prioritize. And then that kind of life moment, solving the consumer problem, et cetera, I think is the other one. So we have to ask you our famous last question, which is what's the bravest thing that you've ever done? 
So I've heard, you know, lots of people talk personally, professionally. I think personally, I can talk about quote unquote risky experiences I've had that uh, were brave. But I think here probably professional is probably the way to go. Years ago, when I was at Amazon, I was running a business and developed a relationship with a mentor, a guy named Doug Harrington, who I really thought I could learn a lot from and really wanted to work for him. And for months, I was talking to him about potential roles in his team, et cetera. And we kind of had an idea, we were incubating an idea. And he kept saying, you know, let me get funding for the idea and then I'll hire you. Let me get funding for the idea and I'll hire you. And months went by and I was kind of getting impatient. I walked into his office one day and I said, how about this? How about hire me just alone for six months? And within six months, one of two things is going to happen. Either I'll get funding for this idea, then it'll be easy, or I'll find another job. And he said, oh, let me think about that. The next day he called me back and said, let's do it. And the following week I was quote unquote, interviewing for this job that didn't exist, which was funny for the finance team. And then a few weeks later, started in this role. That was a great experience. He used that to build the uh, Amazon's vendor-powered coupon business. Within five months, we had proved the concept, gotten a bunch of manufacturers on board, and the business was well off and on the ground. And one thing led to another, and it was a great experience. I love that because what that just did is catapult you into yet another episode of Brave Commerce because... Now we got to find out more about that. So cool. I love it. You bet on yourself. It was great. Thanks so much. We'll have you back soon. Thank you for having me. Wow, that was pretty powerful, particularly the last part. Not that the other parts weren't important, but the last part, it's almost like a cliffhanger to find out what happened when Mike created this new job for himself at Amazon and introduced things like couponing and things that we take for granted now. And, and he did that more than a decade ago. I think it kind of shows the, the importance of being in the driver's seat of your career. And we've had some other guests in the past that have pivoted their career in such interesting ways that make it seem like it was always planned to be that way, even maybe if it wasn't. But I'd encourage y'all to go back and listen to Kaylin Thornton, the CMO of Gatorade, former NFLer, Jim Malika, first-time CMO at Bose, whose career pivoted from Disney and Viacom to Under Armour and now Bose. I love seeing these career pivots and I hope you'll be inspired yourselves. If you are, please like, share, tell a friend, leave us a review. We're always looking for feedback. Have a great day. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of Truth, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice. Meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.